Super Talk Mississippi media production. Kickstart your adventure now with a new Gud Golf Cart from Country Carts of Brookhaven. Gud Golf Carts are assembled right here in Mississippi with the best features around. And best of all, they're street legal. Country Carts of Brookhaven, 401 Highway 51 South, phone 601-748-0454. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes, baby. In a Mississippi Minute. That's right. Man, oh man, today's guest when it comes to the arts is all about it. It's not just in his water, it's in his DNA. From he and his brother's legendary iconic hotspot in Jackson, Howell and Miles, to executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, not once, but back for an encore performance. And so much he's accomplished in between. We'll comb this life well admired, well spent, and very well lived, and loved by so many right now on In a Mississippi Minute. Let's welcome in our very own Malcolm White. Hey, hey, Malcolm. Hello, thanks so much for inviting me. Look forward to it. Oh, it's going to be good. All right, so where are you right now? Where's your positioning in the state? Well, as we speak, I am in my office at the Wolf Oak State Office Building on the 11th floor. And this is a position, as you stated, that I have been honored to hold twice. I started in 2005, right after Hurricane Katrina. I served for seven years uh, as the state arts director. Then was invited by Governor Phil Bryant to become the state's tourism director, where I served for three years, and then came back here to the Arts Commission uh, in 2015, and now I have served for another three years here. So I've got about 14 years of public service, and I've enjoyed leading both of these agencies, the Arts Commission and the uh, State Tourism Office. I, I love it. I love it. So, Malcolm, after Katrina... Uh, was there any challenges uh, that obviously uh, the Gulf Coast was hammered? Uh, and I know that's a place that's fond to your heart. I know you spend time there. Tell me, uh, what were your challenges when you took over the job versus if Katrina never happens, I guess? Well, I would have never gotten this job if Katrina had not happened because, in fact, the reason that I applied for the job was because of Katrina. Uh, I grew up in Stone County. It's one of the lower six counties. Witnessed Camille uh, and was very familiar with the destruction of hurricanes uh, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And when Katrina hit, I had a home and still do have a home in Bay St. Louis. So uh, my home flooded. Um, Neighbors of mine's homes were totally destroyed and, and disappeared. And the little community there, Bay St. Louis, and the whole entirety of the Gulf Coast um, was destroyed. It was then the largest natural disaster in the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. And my idea was as I was driving down to the coast to see if my home was still there, 
because there was no way to really see uh, or to communicate that. There was no real, you know, TV. I mean, there were there were no real communication lines open in the immediate right. days uh, after the storm. But anyway, as I was driving down there, uh, I had checked my email before leaving Jackson, and one of the emails in my inbox was from the Mississippi Arts Commission, and it, it reminded people that they were still searching for an executive director, and this was going on, and this was going on, this was going on. So as I'm driving, I'm thinking, what is the most important thing about the Mississippi Gulf Coast? And it occurs to me that it's the story. It's the culture, the heritage, the art, uh, the music, the food, the uh, you know, the important pieces. And I begin to think about recovery and what was recovery going to look like? And it, it occurred to me that if you don't recover your story, your culture, your art, your history, then it's an incomplete recovery. So as I drove, I began to think about the Arts Commission. And literally about halfway down there, uh, I called a few of my friends <laughs> excuse me, bless you, bless you. Uh, who I knew were affiliated with the Arts Commission and asked them had they hired a director yet. And this this began, and the next thing I know, I uh, was talking to the person who was heading up the search and then ultimately uh, asked to apply for the job, got the job, went to Governor Haley Barber, made my case about no recovery is a complete recovery without the recovery of your art and your culture and your story, and he agreed, and, and I got hired. Wow. <laughs> and and I, I thought I would do three years uh, kind of overseeing arts and culture recovery, uh, you know, rebuilding bridges with art panels and rebuilding all the cultural institutions on the coast and, and all of this. And after that, I just stayed and uh, began to work on the creative economy, began to work right. on arts and schools and all those other things. I love that. We're talking to Malcolm White. So I show up in 2011. Uh, you're with tourism. You're running tourism at that point. But did you come right out of uh, this position at the Mississippi Arts Commission at that I point? did. Okay. I did. Okay. Okay, I got yes, it. Yes, I, I had uh, sort of spearheaded this big study, a statewide study on the impact of the creative sector in Mississippi, and, and I had partnered with MDA. And uh, when MDA changed leadership, the, the incoming director – uh, the new executive director, Brent Christensen, and I were talking about this study uh, that we had done a few years ago, and we were talking about the creative economy, and one thing led to another, and he and the governor offered me this job, and, and I literally moved from the 11th floor to the 5th floor. Yeah. So the little folks <laughs> That's a pain. The building. <laughs> That's a total pain. <laughs> I hate moving. I, I hate moving. All right, well, let me ask you this. Um, challenges... Uh, okay, the study. Before I talk about challenges, I may I may not even go back to that. The study itself, you know, what was encompassed in that? Well, we hired a, a group of of experts who had done at that time uh, all of the studies that had been done in the United States on creative impact, cultural impact, and they were based in North Carolina. Uh, they had done a study for. Uh, North Carolina, they had done a study for Louisiana, they'd done a study for uh, the Northeast and a few other states. Colorado, I think, had done a study. And so we hired them. 
uh, and and they a guy named Stu Rosenfeld, and we hired them, and they did this comprehensive statewide study. It took a year, year and a half to do, and in the end, they presented us with these results, and we were very surprised, you know, very positively surprised that their study revealed that 3.5 percent of Mississippi's economy is in the creative sector, and and that's creative workers. That's musicians and writers and designers and architects and poets and potters and that whole group, and that there were over 60,000 jobs that they could identify in the state of Mississippi. So that was a very positive and organic finding, and it was very uh, empowering to all of us, from the governor's office to MDA to the Arts Commission, and we began the, the journey of sharing the results, explaining what the creative economy was, and talking about ways to improve it, to grow it, uh, and to empower it. Do you have a lot, getting back to the challenges, uh, were there obstacles, roadblocks along the way in forms of people here and there that were able to slow you down? Well, uh, in general, there was an education or a re-education process that had to take place. We had to go out and, and talk to policy leaders and and to explain our case and to show them in scientific terms why this is important. I mean, it's one thing to say art is important because right. it ignites the imagination. It, it encourages people to think differently and to explore imagination. But, but to show it to sort of policy leaders and traditional economic develop, development leaders and say, you know, here's some evidence that this is actually an economic development, community development tool. And if we employ it, then we will be able to grow our economy. The one thing that Mississippi is positively known for is all of the creatives. Right. The famous people, whether they're Grammy Award winners or Pulitzer Prize winners or, you know, Oscar winners. And and so I said, what if we could take this most creative, most positive thing that we have and turn it into economic develop, development and community development, and in doing so, build civic pride? So that was sort of my mantra. That was my shtick. And, you know, I've been on it now for 14 years <laughs> crazy. talking about it. And some people are more receptive than others. The other part of that, Steve, that is so incredibly important is using the arts in education, using arts integration in the classroom, because so many of our schools in Mississippi no longer have an arts specialist. We are empowering, we being the Mississippi Arts Commission, an initiative called Whole Schools. We've been on a 25-year mission to empower classroom teachers who are not artists, who have no arts training, to employ arts as a teaching tool. And it's called arts integration. You integrate arts and history. You integrate arts and math. You integrate theater and you integrate music and you integrate creative writing in traditional reading, writing, and arithmetic. And it engages the student who is not a strong rote memorization student. Wow. That is just spot on. Uh, You're very special, Malcolm. We're going to be right back. We're in a Mississippi Minute. Hang on. In a Mississippi.
Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. I'm with Malcolm White, who I just said had the spirit uh, uh, that we need in the position and role that he is currently serving as the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. When I first moved back to town and moved my family back, Malcolm was combing the state, and I watched our our man C. Ray do the same thing. The director of tourism for Mississippi for Visit Mississippi seems like a crazy demanding job as far as getting in your vehicle and rolling, and I've never seen anything like it. It's like the most, uh, I don't know, you put a lot of miles on a car, I can tell you that, and burn some gasoline. Uh, As far as your position here versus that, you're still Malcolm White, and you're still on a mission. What's the difference between the two? Well, my personal mission, as it turns out, was exactly my public service mission. Uh, I did not know when I was creating Howlin' Mouse with my brother back in the early 80s that we were creating a creative economy, that we were taking an old abandoned building and putting small businesses in it that were arts-based businesses, recording studios, painter studios, uh, jewelry makers, uh, all of these small businesses that came in and joined us in the rehabilitation of the old GM&O freight depot was a part of building a creative economy. Well, that terminology didn't exist in 1984 or 1985. But when I got into public service, state government, you know, with this mission of uh, of being a part of the cultural and 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 creative recovery of the Gulf Coast after Katrina, I begin to read books about the creative economy and the creative industries and creative workers, and I begin to see that there was this movement that was so perfectly aligned with what was going on in Mississippi that I just segued right into it, and so my personal business life has always been about community festivals, uh, people telling their story, uh, hospitality, food, beverage, music, theater, uh, having a public place for people to gather and celebrate stories. So the two, as it turns out, were exactly the same. So that is what I've always been about. Uh, It's what I have always done. But I'll tell you about being the director of the Arts Commission and being the director of Visit Mississippi, this explains it pretty well. When I got in state government, I bought a car in 2006, and I now have 300,000 miles on it, <laughs> every one of them put in service to the state of Mississippi. <laughs> That's barreling down the highway, baby. I love it. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Hey, well, okay, okay, let me ask you uh, – Okay, first of all, it's so funny that because, like I said, it's in your water, it's in your DNA. You guys have been doing exactly this and affecting the economy and Im- impacting from the days when you didn't know you were doing it. So I, I totally understand that. You know, as an artist showing up in the back of a bus and getting out uh, and doing a sound check, coming back, going to catering and going and playing your show, getting back on the bus, driving to the Waffle House because I've waited for it all night or a or Denny's or something <laughs> to eat Moonza over Miami or whatever it was I ate. The bottom line was I didn't know diddly about all that went on 
to make that stage and that moment happen. I didn't even, but I, but I always, from growing up playing clubs like yours, uh, playing all these clubs down in the Delta and all that, growing up and trying to figure, trying to learn on your on your stages. I always was worried about the promoter, always. So I always had that in me, but I didn't know the hell that you all went through. Now, when you've got a venue, you've already got it all sort of built, but just to put on festivals, and I want to get into that in a minute because now that we've engaged in the mighty Mississippi, and I wish you to stab me uh, with the with the wrong side of a butter knife, like just easily, and said, before you do this, Steve, you got to understand what goes into it. But it's been a blessing, and I'm glad I went in blind, but the respect I have for promoters now is another level, especially when there's no infrastructure, and you got to come in and, and, and start things from scratch. It's a lot of work, a lot of keeping people interested, sponsors that make it fly. I mean, it's just a lot. So now I want to back up. I, I was paying tribute to you, by the way, just then, and and also paying tribute to my ignorance as I grew up. What? Take me back to you and your brother. I worked with my brother for years the same way, uh, a little differently. We just had a band, and all of a sudden we had two thirty-foot trucks. So there was economy, and there was we were paying band members, and eventually before we went to Nashville. But but take me back to you and him growing up. You and Hal growing up. Um, you know, was it in your folks' DNA? I mean, was it, were they involved in the arts? Where did it all happen for two brothers who a lot of times are very different to do one thing together and make such an impact? Well, my brother Hal and I are, are very different, but we are brothers. We're only two years apart, and we, we grew up being referred to as the boys, the white brothers. We, many people thought we were twins. We were often dressed alike. <laughs> And we were inseparable, and we spent our entire lives uh, being together, sharing apartments, being in business together, working sometimes as competitors, sometimes uh, on the same team. But, uh, you know, I, I lived an idyllic childhood, grew up in Perkinston. My father worked at the community college. We lived on campus. There was a movie, a concert, a play, a, a sporting event every night. And I lived on a college campus from the time I was born until uh, the time I graduated from college. So I, that was really the influence. Was My father was a teacher. He was a coach. He was an administrator. He was president of Northeast Mississippi Community College. And, and that was really what opened our eyes to, to that world. And I started booking bands in high school. Like, you were the guy on stage in high school. I was the guy booking the hall and the and the in the show and and taking up the money and paying the band I love it and, and you know so so that's I became a promoter in high school when I got to college uh, I became a member of the concert committee and I continued doing that both at Northeast and Community College at Mississippi State I was on the concert committee and then when I got in to uh, working in the hospitality industry though I started in the kitchen. I quickly moved up to booking the bands in the lounge. So I've always done that. My brother tended to be more in the kitchen, back of house, and I drifted toward the front of the house and more the PR promoter booker guy. Right. So we we sort of evolved in that way, and when we decided to open Hallam House, we were very clear about who was going to work where and what the 
you know, what, what the relationships and the jobs are going to be. I had long been booking vans at George Street, at Ichabod's in Hattiesburg, oh. um, and, and we'd, we'd worked in New Orleans at the Bourbon Orleans Hotel, and we'd run all the banquets and the special events and the <clears throat> catering uh, and, and, and all of that. So we just sort of stuck together and ended up in Jackson in 1985, with this big old building, and, and we said, let's do this thing that we've been talking about. <laughs> and, and that's sort of how it evolved. I love it because you we're talking to Malcolm White. You, you, you guys together sort of represented one person. My brother right. and I were the same way, except here, here was one thing that didn't ever need to happen. It was so funny. My, my brother Joe decides, you know, he's running sound and running the business. So he decides he's going to learn to play saxophone. Well, come on. You know, it's already... He's already graduated, has these drive-in beer barns from, from Ole Miss, graduated. I mean, it's been years, and he picks up a saxophone. Well, he decides he's going to put a mic at the soundboard for him to start playing with the band. And, like, I remember the first time it happened, I think we were in Chevy's at, 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 at Butch Reginelli's place, and all of a sudden here we hear this, this solo happening. And it wasn't bad, but I'm going like, it was such shock. I said, Joe? You know, I mean, and it, I think he did it. For, you couldn't tell he was way bigger than I was. I couldn't tell him no. But, man, it was a shock to the system. I don't, I don't know if Hal ever that's put you funny. through that, you know. <laughs> but, oh, that's great. But, but it was a lot of fun. It just brought I mean, that's back. brothers for you. you know? <laughs> exactly. It's the brothers for you. Hey, um, okay, we just watched, uh, Gwen and I were watching uh, this documentary. Documentaries have become such a, a force, uh, you know, with all the, the dawn of Netflix and Quello, Stingray, and, and now Go USA Networks, all these things that that seem to be given uh, avenues and platforms for people uh, to show more art. We watch Studio 54, so I think oh, wow. of me and my brother. I think of you and your brother. It's funny that I watched it last night. Now, that, that was a wild, obviously, disco scenario, uh, and I want to sort of compare the two because I was able and blessed to play Hallamows a couple times back in the day in the late 80s and i do want to sort of talk about that and and have we not made a documentary and why or maybe i maybe i've missed the boat there maybe the book's already been written but we're in a mississippi minute and before we before we go into all that we're and take a break you get to be the dj as you know as good as anybody that we are the birthplace of american music so would you like to hear albert king or dorothy moore well, I love them both. I'm going to go with Albert because Albert was the first act that we booked at Howlin' Mouse when, hmm. when we opened it. Uh, Dorothy certainly is a friend and has played there many times, but let's go with Albert because he was our very first act. I love it. Uh, we're on the same page. You're in a Mississippi Minute. I'd like to hear a little I Want to Get Funky with Malcolm White. <laughs> Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I get the ball when the game's on the line. I know what I want. I'm Steve Azar. I am with What a Wonderful Soul. And when it comes to arts, 
uh, and business mixed. He's as good as it gets. Malcolm White. We're talking Howlin' Miles now, and I, and I love this because I, as an artist, understood its value. It took a long time for you guys to even let me play your stage, and I needed to earn it, and I, I was humbled. So many people graced the stage. You talk about Albert King being your first act. All right, so take me to Albert King and why. I mean, how, where was Albert, Albert in his career? Uh, did you guys sort of go balls to the wall the first act? Or was he at a place where, you know, you had a great relationship with him? He came in. Uh, did all of that matter? You know, what was the thinking behind Albert for for being the first? Well, we we were blessed to to have access to Albert King. We did two B.B. King shows there. We did a Tyrone Davis show there and a Lionel Hampton show there. And we were able to do all of those because of my relationship with Charles Evers. Uh, and Charles would come in and co-promote shows with me. Uh, and and Charles and I would co-promote Zoo Blues and, and other events. I would book some of the bands on the Medgar Evers Homecoming. So he and I were, had a relationship. He and I were friends. And, and he's the reason that Albert King was our first act. Just It just so happened that as we, my brother and I, had, had evolved into the concept of Howlin' Mouse in this building, the old GM&O Freight Depot, Charles called and had an Albert King date, was looking for a place to play it. I had been at George Street, and he and I had played. Um, we played B.B. King at George Street. We played um, Gatemouth Brown at George Street. We played a couple other shows that, that he brought me. So, you know, in this business, you don't, you don't go solo. You know, it's all about relationships. Oh, absolutely. And so Charles had this, this date. I jumped all over it. And it was it was great. It just the timing was perfect that this was the first show we did as Howlin' Miles, wow. and we we co-promoted it with with Charles Evers. I love that. That that's the key to me with everything. When somebody asks me, and we're at the Delta Music Institute, and I'm doing my one day a month, I, I reiterate the word relationships. I say three most important things are relationships, 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 and they look at right. me like what? <laughs> and I say, <laughs> don't be afraid to make a new friend every day. And, and go about it honestly. Don't have a reason for it other than you never know when that person's really going to, it's going to turn into something. And it's a lot of fun when it's somebody that you have a relationship and respect for. And when you put something together that works, it's like, you know, there's an extra celebration there. There's a toast and it. it's just better. We're talking to Malcolm White. So Malcolm, the food, everything at one time, you, you start off, you've got the, is it every, how's the place set up compared to the late 80s or, or even in even in the mid 90s uh, are there change I mean, the, the restaurants and in, in, uh, going full at it oh absolutely the, the the floor plan and the footprint is still more or less the same you know the restaurant is where it always has been the kitchen's where it always has been the courtyard patio we've experimented with a brewery out there at one point and that has come and gone the big back room where the concerts are looks more or less the way it did uh, in 1985 we we added that smaller room to the side of it uh so that we can literally have you know four bands four stages going at once i mean that's crazy five. you got a music festival going and that's what i've always noticed it's just <laughs> wild you know on our 25th anniversary of Mouse, we literally played 25 bands in one night <laughs> oh on five stages <laughs> 
That's just wild. <laughs> Are you kidding? Okay, so how? What about sound? What'd you guys do to? Well, the, the way we have it set up is that you know what we can move. The stages are far enough apart where they can play simultaneously, or when they're too close, we alternate them. So we might have a band on the courtyard playing and a band in the dining room and a band on the main stage. Those three can play at the same time, and there's no sound bleed. Now, when we switch over to the red room, neon fish room, the little small room, we can't play the main stage. So, so then we have to go there, dining room, courtyard. So you know, it's just a, it's just it's like a like a festival. It's like yeah. having it's like your festival. You you play one stage here and another stage over there. At Jubilee Jam, you know, we had five stages. Yeah, this is and, wild. But and often outside. we would run bands at the same time. Right, you got a lot of blocks there, and you can do that. But I can't right. believe in a in a in a in a building, you know, with walls. You're able, you know, it's funny. I mean, do you have a decibel sort of a deal that you got to keep things in, at, on certain stages at a point? Yeah, yeah we do that. And, and, and just you keeping certain doors closed during certain sets and that sort of stuff. So, we, you know, it's just something we've figured out. Uh, just like running a circus. You know, we got used to it and we knew how to do it. <laughs> we had a few instances where we would have sound bleed. I remember one time we had a, a DJ in the big room uh, and we had a... a we would have live acts over in the smaller room, and and the boom, boom, boom would become a problem. We we learned the hard way on that one. Uh, so, so you know we would have to adjust as we go and make sure we didn't repeat those types of of mistakes. We're talking to Malcolm White. Okay, so let's get back real quick to what I was bringing up earlier: the documentary of Studio Fifty Four. Right, two guys that were like brothers. They end up going to jail for a little bit. And they come back, and then I don't realize that. Uh, and then one, you know, one passes away uh, from that whole world of, you know, uh, from from AIDS, and then the other one uh, it ends up, you know, building all these mecca hotel, like all these hotels, and and it seems like it just. And he was the quiet guy behind the scenes that ends up just just really intelligent guy and very likable, very humble. It seemed probably been humbled. Um, and looked like he appreciated things. Have we talked about doing? Okay, first of all, two questions: Did you ever go into the disco mode era in the when that hit? And did you, or maybe one of the rooms, or like you said, as things evolve, was it prominent at some point? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. When John Travolta was doing Saturday Night Fever, and all that, and have you thought about doing a documentary on Howlin' Mouse? Well, we've certainly had our flirtations and iterations with uh, with a DJ uh, concept. Uh, we've sublet some of the rooms out during our history to people who had uh, discotheques. We we had the Lamar, which was a concept with a with DJs on Wednesday night. <clears throat> they they were in that building right before Howlin' Mouse took it over. I was affiliated with that. You know, I have owned and operated clubs that were discotheques, uh, Texas two-step swing bars, country western bars, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, new age uh, 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 alternative rock clubs. I have owned blues clubs. Uh, you know, I have in my time pretty much covered the waterfront. At Hall and Mouse, we've experimented with a number of things. We love doing traditional music, roots music, but sometimes we find that in order to pay the bills, we will do something uh, that's trendy. 
Uh, we try not to stay with it too long if we can help it. Now, on the documentary, uh, no, we haven't done a documentary. I did write a book about Howlin' Mouse uh, with uh, my collaborator and illustrator, Ginger Williams Cook, right. uh, last year called The Artful Evolution of Howlin' Mouse. And it, but it's not a history from beginning, middle, and end. It's just random stories about Howlin' Mouse. We did once do a series of live broadcasts from there, sort of trying to be the Austin City Limits. Uh, and we taped four or five for Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The one that still sticks around is the singer-songwriter piece with Mac McAnally and Fred Noblock. Oh, I love it. I just they still show that one from time I just to interviewed time. Fred. I've written with Fred. I, he's one of my, he was one of my favorite people in Nashville. Just what a beautiful, beautiful man. And just he'd tell the stories of Malico. And just I love it. Yeah, Fred's great. I mean, Fred uh, is a Mississippi guy. I mean, yeah. a Jackson guy who went to Nashville long before most. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, had a hit record, had good bands, played the circuit. And, and now he's just sort of sitting back writing tunes, yeah. working studio gigs. So just good. being one of many, you know, pretty yeah. much the way I see what yeah. I do. You know? Yeah, no, I love it. Okay, so wait a minute. That's the book. That's the uh, the artful evolution of Howlin' Miles you're talking about. But what about yeah. Little Stories? Little Stories is a book of Instagrams, of, of photographs that I took on my smartphone uh, that I published. Uh, it's been, let's see, probably 2012 or 13. It was my first book, and then... The book with Ginger Williams Cook that was published by University Press of Mississippi uh, came out two years ago now, last year really, uh, and it's the it's the one about Howlin' Mouse. So, uh, so I've I've got both of those pieces out. I love it. So, how can people get copies? Can you go well, to a website? They're all in the local locally owned bookstores all across Mississippi, from Turn Row to Square Books to Lemuria to. Pass books, uh, Bay books, you know, anywhere they sell books, the Bookmart and Starkville, uh, anywhere that locally owned bookstores uh, exist, both the copies of both of my books are there. I think so. so little stories and the artful evolution of Howlin' Mouse. All right, okay, right. that's great. I got to get pick a copy and then you can sign them uh, when I, I see it. you. We're talking to Malcolm White. You're in a Mississippi minute. Uh, we're just uh, winding down. I'm keeping him from doing his job, which is what I love doing. We're going to be right back. We're in a Mississippi Minute. Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Sign on the door says down home cooking. Yeah, I'm hungry, but I can't eat. I'm Steve Azar. I'm with Malcolm White. Uh, Malcolm, your spirit and delivery is it's just simply brilliant. And without somebody like you, somebody like me has no purpose. And I, I mean that. I just feel like uh, you've been on this path your whole life, 
that has been so steady and consistent and all has revolved around the arts. And it's just, it's an amazing journey you've been on. Do you ever look back and go, uh, this has been pretty cool and it's still cool? Every day. Yeah. Every day I am blessed to have this job, to have lived this life. And uh, I recognize on a daily basis that that this uh, was a gift from God Almighty and a, a way for me to serve the people of Mississippi, to do the things that I thought were fun and cool and, and creative, to associate myself with artists and artful folks like you and, and talking about Fred and painters. Last night I was at an exhibit for a guy named Key Francis. He lives in Tupelo and he's a He's a painter and a visual artist, and, and I just got my phone out and videoed his talk because it was so inspiring. He he was telling the story of creating art, and I just, you know, I'm blessed to do what I do, and uh, I'm so honored that I have been able to be in public service now for 14 years. It's crazy. To be in the private sector, too, to still have a family business called Hal and Mouse that the next generation is running, and it's still up and running, and the parade, I mean, for... 36 years we have produced this St. Patty's Parade that I named after my brother a few years ago. And it it brings 75,000 people to downtown Jackson every spring. And, you know, in Jubilee Jam, which doesn't exist anymore, but the the great run of Jubilee Jam and Zoo Blues where I got to present every artist I had ever uh, in my life been touched by. I mean, I got to meet them all, present them all haul their gear, make sure their <laughs> stage and their catering and their and their equipment was all in place. And and it's been quite an honor and it's been quite a run. Wow, I just love it. Well you just hey, you're you know it's funny, I just think the arts sort of keep us young. People always ask, how do you still look young? And I said, Well I don't necessarily feel after playing eighteen holes it doesn't feel good anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't know what's what's hurting, but but I do feel well, like you it, may be hurting, but you're always looking good. Well, you're you're crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> you, you know what? Those glasses you're wearing may need to be adjusted. You may need. To <laughs> I got a good eye doctor I play with all the time, Dr. Patera down here. They can work yeah, on you. Hey, he can fix me. Yeah, he fix you. You may, may change your uh, mind with that uh, comment. Hey, real quick before we go, you, the, the, the South Arts, your, your time chairman of the Mississippi Blues Commission. Just briefly tell us, you know, what that entailed, and and are you still involved? Oh, yeah. I'm still on the Blues Commission. I'm not the chairman currently. I did have a a term as chairman. Uh, But, you know, that's the work of putting up the the blues trail, of putting up the markers and honoring those great blues legends who really are the reason that we say we are the birthplace of American music, you know. And and that work has been a privilege, again, through that work, I've got to meet these living legends, these people who created the art that is America's music, uh, the people who put Mississippi on the map, and, and I am honored to continue to do that work. Currently, I'm working on a, the, the Mississippi Writers Trail, and in my time in state service, I've been affiliated with the Blues Trail and, and chaired that commission. Uh, I'm on the advisory committee for the Country Music Trail. Uh, I have uh, served on the Freedom Civil Rights Trail. I have overseen that work, and now I'm working on the Writers Trail. And you know, and it's quite an honor to put a marker in the ground for William Faulkner oh, and, and, and for Eudora Wealthy, and to, to work with their families and their, you know, to work with Roanoke. It's just a great pleasure to get to do this work. And every day, I'm honored that I get to give back and to help people understand about this place called Mississippi and the power and the grace that this state 
uh, holes in the place in the country where we that we represent. And you know, people sometimes look down on uh, on our place, <clears throat> but I continue to say that you know we have a we we have made a sizable and important contribution to the culture of America, oh. and we continue to play that role. Yeah, I mean, you both and I and I knew that when I'd go out. Uh, and play shows. I was always introduced. I didn't care what record label, if it was big or what is small. I always had them introduce me from the Mississippi Delta because I felt like that was my my greatest achievement that I was able to be born and raised here. So I get that, and I still we you and I both bleed it, and we we breathe it and we know it. So I love it. I appreciate you taking the time. I do want to quote one thing because I was able to go speak at a, a John Schofield has a book out. And I'm hoping I'm going to get him on the show, but he was so interesting. And obviously his grandfather, the colonel, spent all oh, yeah. this time with William Faulkner. And and it was interesting. Uh, it, so I had to speak for a little bit. And one, I love William Faulkner quotes. I love them. And obviously we, un, we know the one to understand the world. You must first understand a place like Mississippi. That is That is so true and so poignant. But my favorite quote of his has always been, and I've lived by it, given the choice between the experience of pain and nothing – I would choose pain. And I just said, I mean, that just says it all to me, because if you're going to achieve anything special that people go, wow, that was great. And you and you can look at yourself and go, you did something that actually impacted others and felt good. You got to experience pain. You got to do it because there's no greatness isn't going to come from just just, you know, going 55 and a 55 mile an hour speed. It ain't <laughs> never happening. has, never will. Never will. Well, we've been with Malcolm White. Malcolm, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you got to get back to it. Uh, Mississippi loves you. I love you, and I appreciate uh, all you do. And uh, I can't wait to get together with you soon and, and uh, have a cocktail and, and a good meal. Steve, thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. You too, Bye-bye. I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them where you can take your sweet time. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.